I grew up in a conservative Jewish home. And being Jewish has always been very important to me. I knew that I was a part of the chosen people, but I had no idea what we were chosen for. Being Jewish to me means that, that I, I need to be a servant of God. We did all the holidays and the Friday night dinners, but not very religious. We Jews are persecuted throughout the centuries, all in the name of Christianity. You know, I used to crawl into his lap and I said, Daddy, what is that number on your arm? I did go and try and, try and find God in the synagogue, and I couldn't. I was born Jewish. Um, it's just a, sort of a natural part of my identity. As a Jew, I never thought of myself as a sinner. I didn't think of myself as a little sinner. I spent my whole life looking good for God. My best friend since first grade suddenly told me she couldn't be my friend anymore because I was Jewish. I always had a strong sense of being Jewish. I grew up with a very Jewish upbringing. I went to a conservative synagogue. We celebrated the Jewish holidays. I went to Hebrew school and all that stuff growing up as a kid. Um, and I believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I went to synagogue on the, on the Sabbath. Uh, we didn't know about God. We thought maybe he's there, maybe not. We went to synagogue on the high holidays, and et cetera, and observed the ho you know, all the Jewish holidays and stuff. And any time I would ask a question um, about Jesus, the answer I got was, well, we're Jewish. We're not supposed to talk about him. Well, why not talk about him? The man was Jewish. I knew that if my own Hebrew scriptures are true, Jesus had to be that promised Messiah who would die for my sins and rise from the dead. To me, there's nothing more Jewish that I can do than to believe in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. God had shown me, yes, Jesus was the Messiah and I needed to believe in him. To me, it seems very natural to be Jewish and believe in Jesus. I thought, God, what if I'm betraying you by believing in Jesus? What if I'm doing the wrong thing? You're brought up to know that you don't believe in Jesus. That's the one thing you know you don't believe in as a Jew. And it's amazing to think that I do love Jesus. So the perfect demonstration of God's love throughout all history is the offering of the Messiah. So in May of 1971, I got a New Testament and I started to read it. I prayed to accept Jesus in my heart. And that was, wow, a lot of years ago, at least 20. <laughs> I really feel that, that believing in Jesus is a fulfillment of my Jewish identity. He said, hey, Stephen, what's happening? I said, uh, I don't know, Joel, but I want to know Jesus. I'm very proud to be Jewish, and I'm more proud that Jesus is my Messiah. No, Jewishness in Jesus they go together. They're not two contradictory things. So why shouldn't we live as though they go together? Never thought to myself, well, gee, I'm Jewish. I can't believe this because I realized somehow that this was a message about a Jewish Messiah. I mean, what happens when I believe in Jesus? Do I become Gentile? No. When I got to Isaiah 53, Isaiah really got to me. And I started studying more. And Goodness sakes, yes, I was convinced about the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So why don't you ask him whether or not it's true? Millions of Jewish people are coming to the Lord Jesus for salvation now, and even more will do so in the future seven years of tribulation. This sermon is entitled, Evangelism, Do It Prayerfully.
and a subtitle would be Pray Until Something Happens. Push. Pray until something happens. Let's do that right now before we begin to look at God's word. Lord, we thank you that as we call out to you, you hear us, that you have a flawless will and purpose, and that you are not willing that any should perish. We pray that this time spent in your word would mobilize serious prayer by us for the lost, and that in so doing, this time in our prayers would wage a serious frontal attack against Satan and a blow against hell. And we pray this in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the head of the church's name, and the church said, amen. Amen. Evangelism, do it prayerfully. As a young pastor in London, Ontario, I had no clue that there were three hospitals named Victoria Hospital. And so a family in the church said that their dad, Morris Robson, had suffered a severe stroke, and he was in the ICU unit of Victoria Hospital, London. So I went down there because they specially pointed out they didn't know Christ as Savior yet. He was a senior citizen, but he had rejected Christ all his life. I went to the first Victoria Hospital. I asked for Morris Robson. We don't have any patient by that name. I said, how can that be? They said, well, there's another campus in the city called Victoria Hospital. Check there. So I drove over there, and I asked the same question. Do you have Morris Robson as a patient? They said, no, we don't. I said, would there be a third hospital named Victoria Hospital in London? Yeah, it's over there. So I drove over there. Do you have a Morris Robson as a patient in ICU? Uh, No. And as I was walking out of the hospital, ready to give up on finding Morris Robson, the Spirit of God pressed in on my heart that I could not leave that third hospital. So I asked at the front desk, where is the neurological ward in this hospital? Thinking if he wasn't in ICU anymore, he'd be on the neurological floor to do with a brain problem after a stroke. They said, it's the fourth floor. So I went up to the nursing desk on the fourth floor. I said, do you have a Morris Robson here as a patient? Looked at the clipboard. No, we don't. So I'm about to leave again, and the Spirit of God pushes in on me. He says, you can't leave. He didn't say it audibly, but I felt it in my heart. I couldn't leave. So I went back, and I looked in every room on the fourth floor. Pastors can do that. I looked in every room, and about the seventh room I walked into, there was Mr. Robson. I knew him. They had his arms lashed down to the rails on his bed because he was agitated. He couldn't speak, but he could hear. He knew who I was. And I took him by the hand. I told him of God's love and willingness to forgive his sins. And I said, would you like me to tell you the way to heaven? You squeeze my hand if you want me to tell you the way to heaven. And he squeezed my hand. And I went through the bad news and the good news gospel track presentation of the gospel. And I said, after every of the four points, I said, do you understand that you're a sinner? Boom. Do you understand that God loves sinners? Boom. Do you understand that God offers you heaven and forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ? Boom. Do you want to receive Jesus as your Savior right now? I broke my hand. It's a farmer. He was strong. Prayer. Prayer is vital to all the evangelizing we all will do. 
the reason prayer is so vital to share our faith is because heaven and hell are in the balance. And because it's supernatural, spiritual darkness and dumbfoundedness that must be overcome by God. It is in Ephesians 6.12 that we read, for our struggle, literally our hand-to-hat, hand-to-hand fight, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. Satan's rulers, Satan's powers, Satan's forces are highly organized. And they are strategized. They are fallen angels and they are called demons in Scripture. And Satan, as the enemy of human souls, is not unprepared, nor is he unorganized, nor is he underpowered. No, Satan blocks, he baits, he blinds. Satan schemes and Satan plans and Satan assaults and Satan overtakes and it is Satan's ambition to destroy in a temporal way and to destroy eternally in hell. He wants to prevent evangelism. Satan did not want me to find Mr. Morris Robson at the Victoria Hospital in London, Ontario, Canada that night. But his family prayed me to the right room. And I prayed myself to the right room. 1 Peter 5.8 compares Satan to a hungry lion. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Oh, Hollywood, Hanna-Barbera cartoons would want us to believe that Satan, if he's real, wears a red costume, has these little horns and a pitchfork, and isn't he cute? No, he isn't. He is not cute. He's the adversary of Jesus. He's the adversary of Jesus' followers. He's the adversary of the lost hearing the gospel and transferring their trust to Christ. But he's a defeated foe, church. He is a defeated foe. And so we must pray before, during, and after evangelizing. We need to talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. We must pray before we evangelize. Because it's only the Holy Spirit who can remedy the lost person's spiritual blindness. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can give the needed intellectual understanding to place faith in Jesus Christ for the person who otherwise is blinded, spiritually blinded. Spiritual sight requires a spiritual eye surgeon, the Holy Spirit. Spiritual comprehension takes a spiritual brain surgeon, the Holy Spirit. Newton, the former human trafficker, wrote, how amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I wonder, for each of you, who prayed for your spiritual blindness to be removed? Who prayed that you would understand the simple gospel before you ever understood it? If you know who that individual was, and they're still living, 
I challenge you this week to reach out to them, to thank them for praying you into Christ's salvation. I challenge you to do that. Some of you may not know who prayed for you. Well, I'll tell you this, somebody did. Because somebody prays for everybody who comes to saving faith in Christ. That's a miracle. And we are to push, pray until something happens. Push. Because, dearly beloved, when we work in God's work and fail to pray, it's just work. But when we work in God's work, having prayed, God works. God works. There was a man, many of you have heard of him, George Mueller. In 1884, George Mueller began to pray for the salvation of five people he knew. He prayed every day for each of the five to be converted. It was after 18 months of praying that the first person was saved. Five years after that, the second person trusted Christ alone for salvation. Six and a half years after that, 12.5 years altogether from starting this prayer project, the third man became a Christian. Another 39 and a half years of praying passed. 39 and a half years of praying daily for these men to be saved. 39 and a half more years. Every day. Mr. Mueller went to heaven 52 years after he began to pray daily for five specific people to be saved. And at the time of his promotion to heaven, George Mueller had prayed for the last two men's salvation every day for 52 years. 52 years. Push. Pray until something happens. So what happened? The other two men, man four and man five, they both trusted Jesus for salvation within months after Mr. Mueller's death. Push. Pray until something happens. For Mr. Mueller to pray that consistently and doggedly and determinedly, he had to believe at least six things. Do you believe these six things? If you believe and I believe the same six things that Mr. Mueller believed, we'll pray with a passion and a consistency over the long haul. This is what he must have believed. Number one, that God hears prayer. Number two, he must have believed that God loves lost people. Number three, that you don't know if a prayer to God is a no or a wait answer until you wait and keep praying. Number three, Mr. Mueller must have believed, excuse me, number four, he must have believed that the best thing he could do for those lost men was to keep praying for them to be born again. Fifth, Mueller must have believed that prayer brings gospel witnesses to lost people. In other words, divine appointments is what brings a willing and open heart to a faithful gospel servant. That's what happened with Morris Robson in the hospital, lashed to his bed after a stroke. It was a divine appointment. 
Number six, Mr. Mueller, and we must believe that it takes prayer to change the cold human heart and to open the blind human eye. Do you believe those things? To the degree that you do, you'll pray for lost people by name over the long haul. The big idea of this sermon titled Do Evangelism Prayerfully or the subtitle Push. Pray until something happens. Go with me to Ephesians. Our main text this morning is Ephesians chapter 6. As you turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 is where we'll start. I may, may I remind you that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is doctrine. What is sound to believe in? Chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians is practice. The difference that right belief should make in how we live. Behavior. Belief, chapters 1 through 3. Behavior, chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians. When we come to Ephesians 6, verse 18, the armor of God, that beautiful passage that explains the armor of God that we are to put on each day as children of God, followers of Christ, has just been covered. The armor of God has just been covered. And interestingly enough, after he gives all the pieces of the armor, the Apostle Paul, led of the Spirit, writes verses 18 to 20 all about prayer in evangelism. With all prayer and petition... Pray at all times in the Spirit, that's a capital S, so that's the Holy Spirit, with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. In the verses that come immediately after the armor of God verses are verses that are calling us to pray in the role of being evangelists, to pray for ourselves and to pray for others in the family of God who are sharing their faith as well. That's significant. That is very significant. Evangelism, do it prayerfully. Now, when we see the Apostle Paul call the Ephesian believers in that ancient church to pray for him, we need to keep some things in mind. Let's not lose track of some things. Number one, Paul was very intelligent. He was a Pharisee. He had trained under Gamaliel. He was a brilliant speaker and logical debater. But he asked for prayer when he evangelized. Number two, Paul was radically converted. Became totally sold out to Jesus Christ. Hung around with the people he was going to kill. Yet he asked people to pray for him to be an effective evangelist. Number three, wherever Paul went, he was in the middle either of a revival or a riot. He was no wallflower. He just didn't slip around the edge and lay low. This was a crisis man, a Christ-given crisis man. I want to be that kind of a man, do you? Do you want to be that kind of a woman or that kind of a man that when you walk into a setting, when you walk into a system, when you walk into a workplace, when you walk into a family gathering, that people must make a decision about Jesus Christ? I want to be that kind of a person. I don't want to beat around the bush. Time is short. We had a funeral hill here yesterday. We'll have a funeral here on Monday. And we'll have a funeral after that, I'm sure. Time is of the essence, family. Let's be direct. 
Let's be loving, but let's be direct. So Paul, this great apostle, wrote 60% of the New Testament under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was more than once beaten to the point of death, imprisoned, denied the basics of shelter and food, was shipwrecked, ultimately was beheaded for refusing to stop evangelizing. He asks in Ephesians 6, 18 to 20, pray for me that I'd share my faith. Pray for me. This man who never shut up, he spoke up. He didn't suffer from cold feet and a cold heart like I can, but yet he asked. 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in opening of my mouth to make known the bold, with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Look what he prayed, asked them to pray for him. He wanted prayer for utterance. He wanted prayer that he would have the right words at the right time to share Christ. Wow, that's encouraging to me. The great apostle Paul asked for prayer for utterance. He, secondly, he asked for boldness. He asked for courage to share his faith. That encourages me too because I'm a chicken so often. 19, and pray on my behalf, Paul writes, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now, lest we forget, when the Spirit of God moved the Apostle Paul's mind and hand and quill on the parchment to write the inspired book called Ephesians, he was in jail. He was in jail when he wrote these verses that we're considering at the moment. He was in prison. And it was no cushy prison with flat screen televisions and billiard tables and menus for meals and snacks. It was no prison with exercise machines and high school school courses and doctors and nurses and everything else. It was not that kind of a prison. It was a house arrest situation. The Apostle Paul, the brilliant Pharisee, was chained 24 hours a day, seven days a week to various Roman soldiers. When Paul went to the bathroom, they went with him. When Paul slept, they lay down beside him, chained. This man, <laughs> this man needed prayer to do evangelism. I'm here to tell you, I need your prayers that I would do evangelism. You need my prayers that you all would do evangelism. You all need each other's prayers that you would do evangelism. Another letter that Paul wrote in that same stint that he was under house arrest was Philippians. If you just flip back from Ephesians to Philippians chapter 1, there's some remarkable things here chained to this member of the Praetorian Guard, this soldier, they were together, and when the shift of the soldier changed, whatever that length of time was, eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, I don't know how long their shifts were, but they didn't have the same guard chained to Paul the whole time. There were many guards, and this verse will prove it. These verses will prove it. Philippians 1, 12 to 14. Now, I want you to know, brethren, now he's talking to the Philippians, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become made well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. 
the whole Praetorian Guard. That means if they weren't chained to Paul for a shift and heard the gospel, they heard the gospel from soldiers that were chained to Paul for a shift. The whole Praetorium Guard had heard about Christ. And because Paul's heart beated for evangelism, because heart, his heart was for lost people to get saved, and because Paul's heart was not to see anybody go to hell, he was thrilled to be in prison. Bring it on. Chain me to a new guy. Do you know Jesus? He'll change your life. He'll forgive your sins. I want to be that kind of guy. But the great thing about Caesar's Praetorian Guard was they all had families. <laughs> it's like Atlantis. All the workers at Atlantis have families. And in that Praetorian Guard system would not only be Caesar's soldiers in the Praetorian Guard that would have heard the gospel of this Apostle Paul that's chained. The assistants to Caesar would have heard about it, the judges, the cooks, the food tasters, the cupbearers, the musicians, the custodians, the handymen, the stable guys that work with the horses. All because Paul judged how his life was going, not by his personal conveniences, but by how broad a hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ received. Is that how you judge your life? How are you doing today? Oh, so tough, you know. I missed a parking space in front of the Centerville market. That's a little extreme example. But we should judge how our day is going by the opportunities God has afforded us in that day to share the gospel. Paul said... Now, I want you to know, brother, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that in my imprisonment, the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear, end of quote. Evangelism, do it prayerfully. Pastor Jerry has a Toyota Yaris, and... In 19, no, excuse me, not that long ago, 2006, we were given a Toyota Yaris, and that was the first year that the Yaris ever appeared in Canada. I don't know when it appeared in the Bahamas, but the Yaris was a brand new Toyota model in 06. And so when we drove in our little Yaris around uh, Canada, people looked at it, pointed at it, what's that, you know? And the uh, thing was that once we were given, some people in the church family gave us that Yaris very generously. And uh, when we drove that Yaris, pretty soon we were looking on the road for other Yarises, and they were hard to find. But when you see another Yaris go by, it was a brand new model in Canada, you kind of wave at each other, and, and uh, that's how it went. But you know what? I, saw, I only started to see Yarises because I had an interest in Yarises. You're only going to see opportunities to share the gospel if you're looking for them. When Joanna was little, She's 22 now, and she's a lifeguard. She's, that's been one of her jobs since she was accredited to be a lifeguard. When she was a little girl, we had a community swimming pool in the community we lived in in Canada, and we would take her, her mother would, and I would take her to the pool. She was little, just a, a little girl, 
And we put on the life jacket, and we'd be walking down the street to the community pool. And Joanna knew she was wearing the life jacket. She was going to get to go swimming. She loved swimming, even as a little kid. And then we'd walk her to the edge of the pool, and we'd be in the shallow end, and we'd get her toes over the edge of the pool with her life jacket on, and we'd say, jump. She never looked at us and said, I had no idea I was going to be asked to go in the pool. We put the life jacket on her and walked down the street. She knew she was going in the pool. We walked her up to the edge of the pool, and we said, jump. She knew she was going in the pool. If you and I are going to be effective, consistent sharers of the gospel, we have to be expecting that we will. We don't give these out so that you'll put them in your Bibles as a bookmark. We give these out so we'll give them away. We expect we'll give them away. Amen? Evangelism, do it prayerfully. Push until something happens. In the pew ahead of you, or in some cases the ushers are going to distribute these to the balcony friends, you will find a may I ask you a question track that gives the way of salvation that I shared with Mr. Morris Robson. I think it was a month before he went to heaven in the, in the hospital. And I want you to get those out of the pew rack ahead of you and just wave them at me. There's a, okay, keep waving. It's getting cooler up here. Keep waving. Good. Now, there's also a three by five recipe card. You see that? Pull that out and wave both of them at me. Much, that's double the coolness. That's excellent. Now, here's what we're going to do. First of all, I want you to turn to the person on your left or your right. Introduce yourself to them if they don't know you. And ask that person on the left or the right to pray for you seven days, the next seven days of this week, that you'll share your faith. I want you to turn to the person to your left or right and ask if they'll pray for you to share your faith this week. And then you offer to share to pray for them. All right, that's good. So you've made a commitment, I hope, to pray for the person beside you, to share their faith, and I want you to pray for that person to share their faith every single day until next Sunday. Deal? Now, with this recipe card, I want you to pull out a pen if you have one on you, and if you don't, there's some pens on the ends of the pews, I think, with elastic bands around them. Pencils, excuse me, pencils. I want you to take your three by five card and I want you to take your pencil and I want you to prayerfully write five names of people who are not yet Christians. Now, I've been known to hold a congregation till three o'clock in the afternoon until everybody does this. (laughs) I want you to please, for the sake of the Lord Jesus, for the sake of depopulating hell, for the sake of having a frontal attack on Satan's grip on lost people, to write five names on this card, each your cards. No one else will need to know those names unless you decide to say who they are. Five names. Could be a family member. Could be a business associate. Could be someone you do your hobby with. 
could be a spouse, could be a child, could be a grandchild, could be someone you work with in Awana or Sunday school or the care kitchen. Five names. You got them? When you have your five names on the card, would you just hold your card up so I can see you're done? Wait a little longer here. Please, in the name of Jesus, do this. Thank you. Satan is shaking in his boots right now. Because God's people who have a direct line to heaven through the finished work of Christ are going to pray for lost people by name. And I'm going to challenge me to pray for Keith Thomas, the initials DC, the initials BH, and the initials BC for 30 days without missing. Mr. Mueller did it for 52 years. I challenge you, brothers and sisters, with those names that you've written down, to pray for each of these folks to be saved every day for 30 days and watch to see what God does. Evangelism. Do it prayerfully. The amazing thing about prayer and evangelism is that it's somewhat expected, I hope, that those who know Christ and want to share Christ would pray in the task of evangelism. But do you know what? Sometimes even people who need Christ have their prayers answered when we take them Christ. There was an exceptional high school student in the first church I pastored. He was exceptional. He knew that God called him to the Orient to be a missionary when he was a young boy. And in high school, Gordon, along with all of his other high school classes, taught himself Japanese. How to write it and how to speak it. It's a hard language. Gordon, before he graduated high school, knew how to write Japanese, to speak Japanese, to answer God's call in his life to be a missionary in Japan. Young people up there, are you listening? Wave at me if you're listening. Two of you are. Wave at me if you're listening. God may be calling you to take the gospel across cultural barriers. And I'm not joking about that. Gordon taught himself Japanese, spoke it, wrote it, and he was traveling in northern Ontario to a camp, a Christian camp, and he stopped for gas at the Esso station in this remote remote little town in northern Ontario, and that was before cell phones, and there was this payphone, a phone booth outside of the gas station. So Gordon fills his car with gas. He's walking in to pay, and there's a Japanese man frantically speaking Japanese into the phone. And he's getting nowhere. He's trying to phone the airline agent down in Pearson International Airport in Toronto to tell him he can't make his flight that his ticket's for, and could he see uh, a rescheduling of another flight to make it back to Tokyo? And the person on the other end doesn't know Japanese. So Gordon, he's like about 18 years old. (laughs) He walks up to the man in the phone booth in perfect Japanese. He says, excuse me, sir, may I assist you? (laughs) So the man tells him in Japanese what he needs to do. Gordon says, may I have the phone? 
picks up the phone in perfect Japanese. He tells the airline agent the problem, solves the problem, tells the man, everything's fine. You're going to fly tomorrow night at 10. And the man says, I am traveling the world, he says in Japanese. I am traveling the world to find the true God. Gordon said in perfect Japanese, and the true God sent me to you. Will you come to the camp that I'm going and have dinner with me? And the man gladly went with Gordon to the camp and had a dinner, and Gordon shared the way of salvation with him. Evangelism. Do it prayerfully. Push. Pray until something happens. Will you? I believe you will. We have a video to close this message. Dear God, 
Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us to weep over things that cause you to weep. Help us to celebrate most the things that you most celebrate. Free up our self-centeredness, our fear, our busyness. Whatever needs to be freed up, Lord, that we would be actively sharing our faith. And Lord, I pray that you'd help the man in the pulpit, the man on the platform, and the people, your people in the pew, to pray for the salvation of specific individuals that you love and have died for. I ask these things that you be much glorified, that hell would be depopulated, that heaven would have more citizens. I ask this for your renown to spread in the world. And we ask this in Jesus, the only Savior's name together. Amen.